Hi there. Today we'll be going over childhood disorders. This will be conduct disorder, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or ADHD, autism spectrum disorder, and oppositional defiant disorder or ODD. Starting off with conduct disorder, this is a persistent pattern of behaviors that deviate sharply from the age-appropriate norms and violates the rights of humans and animals. So what this is, is something that could potentially progress into antisocial personality disorder. We had gone over that in the past, and this is very similar, but the difference here is that the patients must be under 18 years of age. Most children with conduct disorder actually don't go on to develop antisocial personality disorder, but if they do go on to develop something that, it, that is like this conduct disorder, it is that antisocial personality disorder. There was a question that had come across my EOR and other exams as well, um, and it asks, what would a patient who is presenting with symptoms or presenting with uh, the criteria for antisocial personality disorder, what would their diagnosis be if they're under 18 years old? then that answer would be conduct disorder. So the main differentiation here is that they're under 18 years old. Uh, risk factors, it's much more common in males. And then there's a high incidence of comorbid disorders with uh, conduct disorder and ADHD and oppositional defiant disorder. And we'll go over those in just a bit. There are four main groups of behavior with conduct disorder, and this is going to be uh, breaking of rules. So um, breaking of rules or age appropriate norms. So this is like running away from home, skipping school, mischief, pranks, very early sexual activity. Another group would be aggressive conduct. So like physical fights, things like that, or cruelty to others or animals. Another group is destructive conduct. So this could be intentionally destroying property or kind of like setting fires, something like that. And then lastly, deceitfulness. So lying, theft, shoplifting, delinquency. And then a little mnemonic for that is bad with two Ds. So B-A-D-D. B for breaking of rules, A for aggressive conduct, D for destructive conduct, and then another D for deceitfulness. For the diagnostic criteria, it's going to be persistent pattern of recurrent violation of the rights of others with at least three behaviors over the last one year and at least one incidence within the last six months. And then of those behaviors, it's, it's the four that I listed before, the bad. Another diagnostic criteria might be aggression to humans or animals. Another would be destruction of property. So again, like engages in fire setting or vandalism. Another might be serious violation of rules, deceitfulness or theft, and then of course being under 18 years of age. So a lot of those four main groups of behaviors, just knowing those, the BADD, bad, will help you know the diagnostic criteria. And then again, you can see that the six months happening, um, that persistent pattern of recurrent violation with at least three of those behaviors of the last one year and at least one incident in the last six months. So that's where the timeframes will come into play with conduct disorder. Looking at treatment, it's going to be multimodal. So behavioral modification is a very big one. It's also beneficial to have community and family involvement and then parent management training. That's a very big thing. The main thing of that is going to be behavior modification, but there needs to be some kind of parent management training as in enforcing rules and setting limits. Because often in these settings, what you'll actually see is that the parents just aren't able to actually maybe do what you'd expect a parent to do when their children are, are acting in this way. There are two medications that might be used to treat impulsivity in conduct disorder, and this would be clonidine and guanfacine. And then there are a few different factors that would help you know if there's a good prognosis versus a poor prognosis. Again, every patient's different, but what you might see in someone with a good prognosis would be a positive relationship with at least one of their parents. The onset of symptoms happens in adolescence. They're female. They have good interpersonal skills and then a high IQ with good academic performance. Um, a poor prognosis, this would be onset of symptoms prior to 10 years of age, having a low IQ or poor academic performance. 
So that covers conduct disorder. And then next we can go into attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or ADHD. So when we're talking about ADHD, this is a neurodevelopmental disorder characterized by persistent inattention, impulsivity, and or hyperactivity that is not age appropriate. Commonly, there is conduct disorder and oppositional defiant disorder going along with ADHD. It doesn't have to be, but it is something that we'll see. There are a couple neurotransmitters that are the primary cause of ADHD, and this is going to be dopamine and norepinephrine. So these play a key role in the areas of the brain that are responsible for regulating attention and executive function. Uh, I don't know if this is necessarily going to help anybody, but uh, I had wrote for myself, uh, Deg Nabbit, I've got ADHD, just with the D and the N uh, kind of like highlighted just for me to, to realize that Deg Nabbit, so D for dopamine and Nabbit for norepinephrine. I don't know if it's going to help anybody, but it did help me during my psych exam just to know that. Uh, those are the two primary neurotransmitters that are responsible for uh, the cause of ADHD. Looking into risk factors, more common in males, prenatal exposure to tobacco will actually increase the risk for the development of ADHD. And there's a few different dietary deficiencies that have actually been shown to play a role or kind of have a factor uh, in the development of ADHD. And this might be zinc, iron, or omega-3 fatty acids. You know, those are things that I wouldn't necessarily keep in mind. You know, you tend to see it more in males. I feel like that might be a little stereotypical, but it is something that we notice in the risk factors. And then, I mean, smoking's always bad. So really, if there's going to be a question about what might uh, increase the risk of really any kind of um, disorder or medical condition and smoking or tobacco is an option, it's probably it. And in this case, it is again. Looking at the clinical manifestations. So you might see this differently or you will see this differently between children and adults in children. You'll see inattention, impulsivity, and hyperactivity. In adults, you'll often see procrastination, mood instability, low self-esteem, and then more impulsive in nature or inattentive. So that's kind of the difference you might see between children and adults because it's not as though adults will present acting the exact same way as a child. You see it differently, but, but it's still this ADHD that's going on. Looking at the diagnostic criteria, this is going to be A through E. A is a persistent pattern of inattention and or hyperactivity impulsivity that interferes with functioning or development as characterized by one and or two. And that one and or two is as follows. One, at least six inattentive symptoms. This might be difficulty maintaining attention, does not appear to listen, fails to pay close attention to details, makes careless mistakes, easily distracted, etc. And then two, at least six hyperactivity or impulsivity symptoms like difficulty in engaging in activities quietly, fidgets with hands or feet, extreme restlessness in adults, or difficulty maintaining seated. Again, more can be listed there, but those are kind of the examples that, that I had found. B is several inattentive or hyperactive impulsive symptoms were present prior to the age of 12. C, severe inattentive or hyperactive impulsive symptoms are present in two or more settings. So this might be at home, school, work, anything like that. D, there is clear evidence that the symptoms interfere with or reduce the quality of social, academic, or occupational functioning. And then E, the symptoms are not due to physiological effects of a substance, another medical or neurological condition, or another mental disorder. There are three different subcategories of ADHD. Uh, this is going to be combined, predominantly inattentive, or predominantly hyperactive slash impulsive. With the combined, you can assume what it is. So this is looking at if both A1, uh, inattention, and criterion A2, hyperactivity, impulsivity, are met in the past six months. So that criteria A1 and that criteria A2, that's the first thing I listed. So like I said, it's A through E. And then A, what it's saying is a persistent pattern of inattention and or hyperactivity, impulsivity that interferes with functioning or development. And then 
A1, so the one is going to be at least six symptoms of inattentiveness, whereas two is at least six symptoms of the hyperactivity or impulsivity. So that's kind of how that's looked at there. And then combined is that you're seeing both criteria from A1 and A2, again, inattention and hyperactivity, impulsivity. Predominantly inattentive, so the second category is if criteria 1A, the inattentive portion, is met, but criterion A2, the hyperactivity impulsivity, is not met. And again, in the last six months. And then you can guess the third category or the third subcategory would be predominantly hyperactive impulsive. So again, this is if A2, hyperactivity impulsivity, is met, but criteria A1, inattention, is not met for the past six months. That's why we call it what it is. So ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. So you can see it's kind of split into those two different sides, the inattentiveness or the hyperactivity slash impulsive combined, all of it's together, or one of the other two. So that's how we split it into three subcategories. Looking at the treatments real quick, ADHD disorder medications have been associated with priapism, uh, a, a couple different medications, and this might be methylphenidates or atomoxetine, also known as stratera. Just really quick bit there uh, that had actually come up for me. So methylphenidates and atomoxetine uh, have been associated with priapism. Primarily here, though, looking at preschool age children. So we're kind of splitting this up whether a patient is under six years old or over. So if a patient's under six years old, we're told that CBT is actually first line. And then first line for children under four years of age, like preschool age, right, is behavioral interventions. So for preschool age children, behavioral therapy is the recommended initial intervention. This can include positive reinforcement and withdrawing privileges due to unwanted behavior. You know, not necessarily something I would keep in mind there. Uh, the main thing, um, not I wouldn't keep in mind the specifics. The main thing I keep in mind is that if they're under six years old, you're probably starting out with CBT. Whereas patients who are six years and older, the first line is medications with or without CBT. And those medications are going to be stimulants. Um, the different stimulant medication classes are kind of split up into four as I've had it. So methylphenidates, dexmethylphenidates, amphetamines, and dextroamphetamines. The mechanism of action of these stimulants is going to be uh, norepinephrine and dopamine reuptake inhibitor and releaser. So we can kind of um, understand again that, uh, what did I said before, Dagnabbit, I've got ADHD. So dopamine and norepinephrine, those are the main two neurotransmitters that we're thinking about when it comes to ADHD. So what these medications do is they prevent the reuptake of dopamine and norepinephrine, and they also release more of it. There, there's more to kind of throw into this, but I think that's the main thing you'd want to keep in mind, um, that those methylphenidates, dexmethylphenidates, amphetamines, and dextroamphetamines, the main thing you're keeping in mind there, again, is dopamine and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors and releasers. Uh, the adverse effects of these, the main two to keep in mind is decreased appetite and insomnia. You can also have poor growth, and this is like a growth retardation that, you know, the patients will eventually catch up, but they'd like to know about that, of course. You can see changes in blood pressure, dizziness, nightmares, tics, psychosis, and risk of dependency. That's always kind of a scare with uh, stimulants. But the main two to keep in mind, I'd say, is decreased appetite and insomnia, especially the main two you'll probably see on an exam. Uh, looking at the non-stimulants, so this might be atomoxetine and veloxazine. Veloxazine is Calbri. The first-line treatment might be a non-stimulant over a stimulant, especially if there's uh, some kind of concern for um, an abuse uh, of a stimulant in a patient. And then uh, the mechanism of action of these is going to be a selective norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. So the dopamine, uh, again, it's a part of it, but with these non-stimulants, the main uh, catecholamine or neurotransmitter that we're focusing on is the norepinephrine. Uh, just a few extra little tidbits with ADHD. Uh, there is an increased suicidal ideation of black box warning for atomoxetine, again, which is stratera. The most common side effect of stratera, that medication is nausea. 
but I, I would absolutely keep in mind that uh, there is an increased suicidal ideation uh, black box warning on um, Shatera or for Shatera. And then some other medications that might be used, I said them before, or I said one of them before, uh, are alpha-2 adrenergic agonists. So this would be clonidine or guanfacine. Alpha-2 adrenergic agonists, like I just said, clonidine and guanfacine, they might be used in children who respond poorly to a trial of stimulants or some kind of non-stimulant as well um, and have kind of maybe not wanted side effects or they have, of course, bad side effects. You might decide to use clonidine or guanfacine um, or at least trial that in a patient. And then clonidine is something actually where if an adult patient is having ADHD and they're also having uh, hypertension as a comorbid condition going along with it, clonidine can also be very beneficial and actually uh, help that hypertension as well. And then lastly, really quick, so clonidine can actually also be used as a, as a sleep agent. Um, in getting somebody to sleep, it doesn't really help keep someone asleep. Um, but again, something to kind of keep in mind. So it may be beneficial, especially to give to your children in the evening. So it helps get them to sleep. It might wear off, um, you know, earlier on in the day. Um, but if dosing can be figured out correctly, it might be something that can also be used as a sleep aid. So I know that was a lot with ADHD. You know, there's kind of a lot of things to understand there and get at. I try to just focus on the main bits there. So I wasn't spending a ton of time in it. Hopefully that, that helps with the ADHD. And next we can go on to autism spectrum disorder. So when we're looking at autism spectrum disorder, this is a developmental disorder characterized by uh, one, impairment in social interaction or communication, and two, restrictive repetitive stereotypes or stereotypical behaviors, as well as other signs leading to impaired social function. Uh, there's a common genetic mutation associated with autism, and that's fragile X syndrome. Some common clinical features or just physical features of that might be like uh, large ears, long face, strabismus, you know, they're having kind of a squint, prominent jaw high arched palate, a scoliosis. I wouldn't necessarily keep that in mind, but just a little bit of, you know, a little extra right there. And then one of the little bit I thought was kind of interesting was that untreated phenylketonuria or PKU will result in autism in 50% of patients. So PKU is something that we treat or something that uh, we keep an eye out for very quickly right after birth. And this is a very good thing, obviously, because if it's untreated, it will cause autism in, in half the patients. So very important right there, something to keep in mind. Going into risk factors, it's more common in males. The symptoms are usually recognized between 12 and 24 months of age. Uh, higher risk with advanced paternal age. So when the mother is older or in an advanced paternal age, there's a higher risk that their child will uh, end up having autism. And there's actually a teratogenic anti-epileptic drug or AED medication that's been linked to autism, and that's valproic acid or valproate. Clinical manifestations, if there's a rapid deterioration of social and or language skills during the first two years of life, autism spectrum disorder should absolutely be considered and the patient should be further evaluated. And then actually, kind of interesting, patients with autism will have a larger uh, than average head circumference. That did actually come up for me, not on an EOR, but just a, a question during my didactic year. So autism spectrum disorder, those patients will tend to have a larger than average head circumference. Again, there's not a whole lot of physical... Uh, manifestations in a lot of these different psychiatric conditions, but there's there's one right there that's that's pretty specific to autism. Uh, the gold standard assessment tools for assessing autism spectrum disorder is going to be things like the autism diagnostic interview, autism diagnostic observation schedule, and then one you'll notice come up a lot is the MCHAT, so Modified Checklist for Autism in Toddlers. That's the one I've noticed, and that's the one I've kept in mind most often. So going into the diagnostic criteria, it's actually going to require all of the following five that I'm going to list off, so A through E. A is going to be atypical social communication. There's some things I could list off here, but really just atypical social communication. You'll kind of get that from the vignette, so that's A. B is a restricted repetitive patterns of behavior, interests, or activities demonstrated by at least two of the following, and this might be 
stereotyped or repetitive movements, use of objects or speech, insistence on sameness, unwavering adherence to routines or ritualized patterns of verbal or nonverbal behavior, highly restricted fixated interests that are abnormal in strength of focus, or increased or decreased response to sensory input or unusual interest in sensory aspects of the environment. So that's kind of a lot. But again, A, atypical social communication, B, restricted repetitive patterns, interests. Uh, it's Again, it, it's pretty stereotypical when you think about autism spectrum disorder. C, the symptoms must impair function. D, the symptoms must be present in the early developmental period. And E, the symptoms are not better explained by an intellectual disability or global developmental delay. We talked about the MCHAT before, the Modified Checklist for Autism and Toddlers, again, being one of the gold standard assessment tools. That's going to be administered at 18 months and 24 months of age. Going into treatment and management, referral for neuropsychologic testing is kind of the mainstay. So if you're suspecting a patient's going to be having this, particularly me as a PA, I'm not really thinking this is something that I'm going to want to be prescribing the bulk of the medications for or early managing in that sense. I'd feel much more comfortable sending this off to, I mean, it doesn't matter to me if it's an MDDO or NP or PA, but sending this off to somebody who's going to be specifically working with patients uh, like this on a regular basis, because I think they're going to treat them best. Moving into the primary treatment goals include three different things. So decreased patient deficits and family distress, maximize functioning, moving the child towards independence, and then improve their quality of life. There might be a couple medication classes that are used kind of as adjunct that may reduce disruptive behavior, aggression, and irritability. These might be alpha-2 adrenergic agonists, that's clonidine and guanfacine, and then you also might use second-generation antipsychotics, and this might be uh, risperidone or aripiprazole, which is Abilify. The main thing to keep in mind is you're going to be most likely sending these patients off for some further testing. Knowing myself and what I'm looking forward to practicing in the future, absolutely, I, I have no issue managing uh, these patients once, you know, if I was to be in family medicine, but I, I feel much more comfortable sending these patients off to somebody who's who's uh, spent a lot more time with them and can really prepare them well. Lastly, we can go into oppositional defiant disorder or ODD. This is a type of childhood disruptive behavior characterized by a persistent pattern of negative, angry, or irritable mood, argumentative or defiant behavior, and intentional vindictiveness or spitefulness that is associated with distress in the patient or close contacts or impairs ability to function in social, school, work, or other settings. The onset of this, often occurring actually in the preschool years, more often in boys before adolescence, 50% of the time, it's associated with ADHD, or ADHD is, you know, uh, occurring along with this. Common environmental factors, this might be insecure attachment, unresponsive parents, maternal aggression, abuse, community violence, peer rejection, parental psychopathology, all of those could be potential environmental factors. Looking at diagnostic criteria, we're looking at symptoms, or at least four symptoms that are present for at least six months. And then these symptoms are occurring uh, with at least one individual that is not a sibling. These symptoms might be an angry or irritable mood, like I said before, so they'll lose their temper often, uh, be resentful and be very angry. Uh, this could be argumentative or defiant behavior. This would be breaking rules, often blaming others for their behaviors or arguing with authoritative figures. Vindictiveness or spitefulness at least two times in the past six months is another one that you'll want to keep in mind there. And then behaviors are associated with distress in the individual or others or negatively impact functioning. And then again, behaviors not accounted for or explained by the diagnosis of another psychiatric disorder. That's something that you're always just trying to keep in mind. Can this be explained by something else? Uh, there's differentiations between mild, moderate, and severe ODD. And the way this is uh, differentiated is by the number of settings where the oppositional behavior actually takes place. 
So one, two, or three settings, respectively. So one setting being mild, two being moderate, and three being severe. Uh, I don't remember if that come up for me on an exam particularly, but it's pretty simple to keep in mind. One is mild, two is moderate, three is severe, and it's all about the settings in which they're coming up, like home, school, work, you know, something like that. Although work wouldn't necessarily uh, make sense in, in this disorder. Uh, looking at treatment, really just looking again at psychotherapy. So behavioral modification therapy and parent management training. Uh, that parent management training, again, that comes up here like it did in conduct disorder. And then pharmacotherapy, medications might be used to treat comorbid conditions like ADHD. Um, remember, I had said 50% of the time it's associated with ADHD, but really there's not any pharmacotherapy used specifically for ODD. You're really relying on that psychotherapy. So that covers childhood disorders. Hopefully that helps. This actually wraps up uh, the end of the psychiatric rotation for me, the behavioral health rotation. Uh, I'll be moving forward on now to the family medicine rotation that I'm currently in right now. Uh, and then I'm kind of just going to be going through uh, what I've been doing just with the psychiatric rotation. I really like the way that Pants Prep Pearls and Smarty Pants has been setting up the list of topics because it truly just follows the blueprint uh, for the pants and the EOR exams. So that's kind of what I'll be doing. So next we'll be going into my family medicine rotation, starting off with cardiovascular. And yeah, hopefully this has all been really helpful. Uh, it's, it's nice for me to be able to listen back to and, and get some benefit out of it as well. It's odd to hear my own voice, but um, yeah, I hope this can be helpful to, to others and, and help you guys get through and be able to spend a little bit of time, maybe just in the car or relaxing a little bit more, maybe while still getting to learn a bit. So see you next time.